Please stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is our passage this evening. Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Let us hear now the word of God. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, we come to you thankful for every word of Scripture that you have given us. We know that the Scriptures have been given to us for our comfort and our encouragement, that through the patience and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We know that these Scriptures testify concerning the things of Jesus Christ, and so we pray that you would reveal to us the ways in which this passage Uh, reveals who you are as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in your work of redemption. And we uh, pray for this direction now in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in these first few weeks uh, in the book of Exodus, we're beginning a journey through the Old Covenant Scriptures to review the history of God's people in the Old Covenant. And when the elders were talking about this, we set out a rather ambitious idea and we'll see how far we get. But the, the ambitious idea is to survey more or less all of Old Testament history, uh, probably not uh, preaching every single chapter of all of the historical books, but a good number of them, starting with Exodus chapter 1 through 20, and perhaps some other chapters in Exodus as well. So we'll see how that develops, uh, God willing. And as we look at this book of Exodus, this historical narrative, it's good to be reminded of how much of the Bible is history, a recounting of God's works in history. We know that the Bible has many different genres. We think of the genre of law and poetry, prophecy, letters of the New Testament, historical narrative, but a big bulk of the Bible, and especially of the Old Testament, is history. Even the prophetic books are set in the context of history. And so this reminds us that God has so ordained that his inspired word be very much a history book for us. We need to know the history 
the story of what God has done for his people. And so in Exodus, we have the grand story of redemption recounted for us. Uh, The way in which the redemption of God's people occurs in Exodus becomes like the paradigm of the Bible, the paradigm of God's redeeming work. As you look even in the later books of the Old Testament, in the prophets, time and time again, the Exodus story is recounted or it's recapitulated, which means it's, it's happening again with another exile and another slavery and then another bringing God's people back and an exodus out of slavery and, and then bringing back into the land that God had given them. This is the pattern we see over and over again. And this Exodus pattern is really a picture of God's redemption, even applicable to the work of Jesus Christ. There's so many parallels between Exodus and the Gospels. Uh, I look forward to finding all of these as we work our way uh, through these chapters. We will see parallel after parallel of God's redemption. Now, one of the first parallels that you see repeated many times in Scripture is how God brings redemption through the birth of a child. This happens many times in the Bible. And part of this uh, harkens back to the fact that the very first prophecy in the Bible concerning Jesus Christ is concerning the birth of a child. Uh, You remember Genesis 3, verse 15, the, the key promise, the gospel promise in Genesis. Uh, We call it, in the technical language, the Proto-Evangelium. And that's just a fancy word that means first gospel. First gospel. That is, it's the first occurrence of God's gospel promise of redemption. The fall of sin has happened, and now God says, I'm going to take care of this problem. I'm going to send a redeemer. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's what Genesis 3.15 says. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So when God determined to to redeem humanity, he didn't send uh, a legions of angels to go do the redeeming work. Now it's true, the angels have a role in redemption. We, we believe that. But it's noteworthy that he didn't say, I'm going to send my angelic armies to go and redeem. No, he says, it is through the seed of the woman that redemption will occur. It will be the birth of a child, a human being, that redemption will come, that the serpent will be crushed. Now we know that this seed is Jesus, our Redeemer. But even this picture of a child being born and then God bringing redemption happens many times throughout Scripture. Uh, There's so many examples of this. Uh, We think perhaps of of Samson, who's not uh, the the greatest redeemer in Scripture, but God used him. Uh, Samson was born to a childless couple that did not expect to have a child, but they were given this special promise by God that he was going to be a a mighty warrior, he was going to be a Nazarite, and he would deliver God's people from their enemies. And he did that imperfectly, but nevertheless, he, he did that. And then we think of John the Baptist. Uh, God sets up these scenarios where people that would ordinarily not have children have a special child. And we think of how John the Baptist was born to this elderly couple, and he becomes the forerunner of the Messiah and declares the way of the Lord. Now here in Exodus, we come once again to the birth of a child, the birth of Moses. And Moses is very, very important in the scriptures. 
you can get a sense for how important Moses is by the fact that the two people that show up at the transfiguration of Christ are Moses and Elijah. So Moses is really important. And Moses, of course, is not the ultimate redeemer, but he is one of God's redeemers that was raised up to lead the people out of slavery and into the promised land. And if you look at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll get a sense for how important Moses was. Deuteronomy 34, uh, 10 through 12, this is the, the comment that's added at the end of Deuteronomy. It says, But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all the servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is an important commentary on how important Moses was. He was a great prophet of God. He, he led the people through a pivotal moment in redemptive history. And so Moses is a a type, a picture of our greater Redeemer to come, the one greater than Moses, the prophet greater than Moses. Uh, We see all these pictures brought out. Just as Moses did, Jesus would come to deliver His people from bondage, from the servitude of sin, from the rigor of serving sin and Satan indefinitely. Jesus would come and break that, and He would bring His people into a much greater land. So that is the, the, the picture here that we have at the beginning is the birth of this child. And so let's look at verses 1 through 2, and we're going to see how the stage is set for the coming of, of Moses. It says, A man of the house of Levi went and took as, a daughter, took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Another pattern we see is how God often starts important stories with genealogical references. We'll see this in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this genealogy. And here in Exodus, we're told that this is a descendant of Levi marrying another descendant of Levi. Here, this line that would become the priestly line. And so we're given something of Moses' lineage. He is a descendant of Levi. And we're, we're told of Moses' father and mother, though they're not given names here. Uh, elsewhere from the Old Testament records, we see that the name of Moses' father and mother is Amram, the father, and Jochebed, the mother. Those are their names. Amram and Jochebed were married. They had a number of children. We, we see here already that Miriam is present, the sister of Moses. Uh, We also know that Aaron was three years older than Moses, so Aaron would have been a little boy at this time. So they may have had other children, but those are the three ones that we know about in particular. And uh, Miriam at this time may have been a six to twelve year old girl, we might surmise. We don't exactly know her age, but she's old enough to walk along the Nile River bank and watch the baskets progress and uh, oversee her, her little brother in a very dangerous journey. And so this, this is the family of Moses. Now, some time after the wicked edict of Pharaoh had been imposed, which you remember what that wicked edict was, it was to throw all the male children into the river. Moses, some time after this begins, or around the time it begins, is born into this family. It is a very dangerous time to be a Hebrew baby boy. This is the worst time imaginable to be born in a Hebrew home 
as a little boy. To come into the world was to be under a death sentence for Moses and for many other children. And Moses' life was therefore in jeopardy from the very beginning. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been for Jochebed? They, they didn't know the, the, the gender of the baby before he was born, but imagine the sense of anticipation and concern. Like, what is this going to be a boy or a girl? And then the day came when he's born and he comes forth and they think, what are we going to do? And Pharaoh thought that this plan would finally help him in in subduing the Hebrews and keeping their numbers down and avoiding the slave rebellion. And so he said, this is the final solution. This is what is going to work to stop the Hebrews from overturning me and, and escaping from Egypt or rebelling against us. But our great and sovereign God has the ability to turn the evil plans of evil men against them. And that is exactly what we see here. And in fact, it was the the evil plan of Pharaoh that God used to work through it and deliver Moses and set him up for a future opportunity to lead God's people out of Egypt. It was because of this evil plan of Pharaoh that Moses was put on the river to begin with. There was nothing else that Jochebed could do. And so she said, okay, I, this is all I, all I can see to do. And so she puts him on the river. And through that river journey, Moses is preserved by the sovereign hand of God. And this reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the best laid plans of evil men can be overruled by a sovereign God. And this is very good news for us because we see many evil plans about. We see conspiracies. We see all these different intentions to thwart the kingdom of God, to stop the advance of King Jesus, to hurt uh, Christ's people. But all of those things can be turned against those who plot that very evil thing, and God can use it for good. And so it was in the life of Moses. Now, as we think about this... Uh, this three-month period, the, the period in which uh, Amram and Jochebed and the siblings, they're, they're caring for Moses, they're hiding him. Uh, you have to think about how much faith this would have taken, the, the potential to give way to fear uh, in this period of time would have been very uh, likely temptation. And, and in this regard, the book of Hebrews gives us some commentary on the faith of Moses' parents. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, it says this uh, of Moses' parents. uh, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So it was a faith step to hide him for three months. And by faith, they overcame the fear of Pharaoh. And... It is necessary for us, brothers and sisters, if we will overcome the fear of man, that we be those that live by faith in the God that we cannot see. And to know that the God that we cannot see is so much greater than any human being and what they do. Matthew Henry, he comments on this point. He says, faith is a great preservative against the sinful, slavish fear of man as it sets God before the soul and shows the vanity of the creature and its subordination to the will and power of God. 
So what Matthew Henry is saying is, by faith, we see with spiritual eyes the greatness of our God, the bigness of our God, and then having seen God, we then see how puny and insignificant and small and incompetent mankind is to do anything to oppose this God. And so it was with Moses' parents. They, they lived by faith. They hid him by faith. They disobeyed Pharaoh by faith. They resisted tyrants by faith. And this was a risky thing to do, to ignore the king's command. They were facing danger by hiding Moses. Uh, They faced the possibility of severe punishment. And, And sometimes it is necessary in the way of faith to put our lives at risk to do the will of God. Imagine what it was like. Uh, Put yourself in their shoes if you're a father or a mother uh, or even a brother or sister. You can think about what would it be like to try to hide little baby Moses for three months to keep him uh, not uh, keep him away from the uh, Pharaoh soldiers that might have gone through the land of Goshen looking for baby boys as they were born. Perhaps the Egyptians' taskmasters, they would make their rounds to say, who else can we toss into the river today? Where are the other Hebrew baby boys? And so they, they had to try to keep Moses quiet. You try to keep a three, three-month-old baby quiet, uh, it gets harder and harder as they get older. They, for a few months, they're sleeping, and, and you can keep them quiet. You just nurse them. They just pass out for a few hours, and it's great. It's quiet. But as they get older, they get louder. And perhaps this was what happened when Moses was three months old. We're not told what event triggered the need to put him in the basket. But you can imagine the scenarios. Uh, You can perhaps reconstruct what might have happened. I mean, it's it's hypothetical. But imagine uh, Amram is off working, as most of the male slaves would have been doing that day. He's off carrying bricks, hauling things, building things for the Egyptians. And then... That day, Moses, he has a 20-minute screaming session. You can't get him to quiet down. And what happens? Somebody's whispering, and they say, there's a baby boy there. And somebody goes and says, or maybe the Egyptian guards are going through, and and maybe something like that happened to provoke this pivotal moment. We don't know for sure, but we know that it became necessary for them to entrust Moses to the care of God. And say, we can't do anything else. We've tried to hide him, but we do not know what else to do. And so this this woman, Jochebed, was a woman of faith. She was not fearing Pharaoh. But the day came where it seemed necessary for the preservation of Moses' life to entrust him to the care of God. Now something that we can learn about the faith of Amram and Jochebed and the the faith of the Hebrews and the faith of the, the midwives is that godly men and women will resist evil. Even with deception, we, we saw last week how the, the deception of the midwives was a godly act. They resisted evil. They would not participate in infanticide. They would not participate in murder. They resisted the evil of Pharaoh. And so it is for us, if we will be those that are godly and that live by faith, we will not become complicit in any kind of evil like this. So we come to the moment where Jochebed puts him into the river and into the little ark that she prepared for him in verses 3 through 4. It says, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, 
and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, when uh, Jochebed puts Moses in this little basket, you'll notice that key word that is given to us. It is the word ark. Moses was put in an ark. Now, it was much, much smaller children than Noah's ark. You remember how big Noah's ark was? Sammy was actually asking me earlier today, how big was Noah's ark? I was trying to give him a sense of the scale. We haven't been to the ark encounter to show him. Uh, But it's very, very big. But Moses' ark was very, very small, just small enough to carry a little baby boy down the river. And the use of the word ark here is noteworthy because it is the only occurrences in all of the Old Testament. There's only two places that this word occurs. It occurs in Genesis 6 through 8 to describe Noah's ark, and here in Exodus 2 to describe Moses' ark. And there are indeed parallels between Noah and Moses. It's just as the, the waters of judgment in the case of Noah, for those that were drowned and killed, led to their deaths, uh, and then Noah's brought through safely, so it is with Moses, this river represented death and judgment because it was the place in which all the baby boys were being thrown, but this baby boy is put in an ark, and he is preserved through the river and then brought to the other side safe and sound. Now imagine placing your little three-month-old boy in an ark on the Nile River. Think of all the perils that a little three-month-old infant riding down a dangerous river would meet with. Certainly there's bugs, but even more scary than that would have been alligators, perhaps. Rushing water at points easily could have run that basket into a rock, overturned it, baby falls out. It's a very dangerous act to do. It's an act of desperation. I think it was done in faith, but desperation in the sense that there was nothing left to do except to entrust him to the care of God. Now, I think one, one thing that we can learn about God's providence here is the reminder that our lives from beginning to end are in the hands of our gracious and good God. You and I all entered this world as babies. We were all conceived in the womb of our mother and knit together in the womb. We were all blessed with life by a gracious and sovereign God who ordered all things that came to pass. And you know that, okay, granted, none of us had to go down the Nile River, but all of us faced some kind of peril as we came into this world, and we faced perils since then. And... Because of that, we are reminded of the goodness of God who so directs every single day of our lives. We we only make it through our time of infancy because God graciously provides for all of our needs. He takes care of us. Uh, You see something of this uh, as a matter of praise in the Psalms. I love Psalm 71. Uh, The writer says, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. And this is true for all of us, brothers and sisters. We have been graciously provided for by our good God from birth unto the very present day. It's his grace that brings us this far. And may we praise him for his good providences in our lives. Now, as we look at Moses's deliverance, we know this is a a very unusual, very unique deliverance for a little baby boy and what happens next in our narrative is the perfect providential meeting of two people well the two people that meet are Moses the three-month-old infant 
and Pharaoh's daughter. God directed this meeting to take place. Now, Pharaoh, uh, uh, Moses had, had no control over this. He has, he's a three-month-old baby. He has no rudder to turn the ark that he's in. He can't say, okay, let's get to this ark to here. There's Pharaoh's daughter. He has nothing to do with any of this. He's just an innocent, innocent in the sense of unaware. He's unaware baby just floating down the river. And God brings that little ark right to where Pharaoh's daughter is. Verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This entire narrative is remarkably ironic if you think about all that's taking place to this point. Pharaoh had concocted a plan that he thought was so good, he was sure that this would succeed, this plan to get rid of the the Hebrews and to diminish their numbers. But God turns the whole thing around and brings deliverance through it. Isn't it ironic that the deliverer of God's people would grow up in Pharaoh's own household? God moves in mysterious ways. He performs wonders in unexpected ways that here, as, as Pharaoh would probably see his daughter caring for this little, little boy, Moses playing with his Egyptian toys, and he'd walk by him. Did, did he realize that this is the deliverer of God's people? He's being raised in your own home. You're teaching him things. You're giving him the wisdom of the Egyptians. You're indoctrinating him. He's still going to deliver God's people. Now, what I, I find fascinating and beautiful about this narrative so far is that one of the ways God frustrates Pharaoh's evil plans is by using the love that women naturally have for children. Think about all the women so far in this narrative. You have the midwives. They feared God. They would not participate in this evil action. But I would suggest that they probably had some natural love for these children that they were assisting in the birth of. Uh, We discussed whether they were Egyptian midwives or Hebrew midwives last week, but it doesn't matter, I don't think, ultimately. I think these women, who were in the line and profession of midwifery, loved babies. That's kind of the standard essential mark of a good midwife, is you love babies. And so these women, they they cared for children. They're not going to participate in this evil. They're not going to kill these children. They feared God. And then also we see the love of Jochebed for her baby boy. This is her own son. She loves him. She's not going to give him up to death. She's going to do everything in her power to protect him from harm. And then we have the daughter of Pharaoh who encounters Moses in this little basket. This this daughter of Pharaoh, she she actually does have compassion on him. She, She, like any normal human being that should have some some natural sympathy and especially a woman this little art comes to her in the reed she opens it up there's a crying baby i mean you got to have some compassion right if you have any sense of natural sympathy you would care for this little baby and that's how she felt about it she felt pity upon this little boy i mean what would you think if you found a a baby floating down a river you need to do something right you need to care for this 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 child who is completely unable to care for himself And so what's ironic and what's beautiful about all this is that Pharaoh, with all of his mighty power, with all of his soldiers, with his big army, he can't stop the natural compassion of his daughter for a crying baby. He doesn't have the ability to do that. 
And then the story gets even better. So it's already, get, it's already a really good story. But the story gets even better because Miriam has been following the ark all along the river. She's been babysitting her little brother on a very dangerous journey. And she's ready for that moment when she can speak to Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Verse, verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the women, the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only is it amazing that Moses becomes Pharaoh's grandson, but it's even more amazing that Pharaoh pays for Moses' nursing. He pays Moses' mother for the nursing of this child who will then become part of the household. Imagine the relief, the joy of Jochebed as she received her baby boy back safe and sound to nurse him, to care for him, perhaps for a a few years even, and then eventually brought him to Pharaoh's house. And that surely would have been a great sacrifice for her to to say goodbye to her son. But to know that he was safe, to know that his life had been delivered would have been of great joy to her as it would be for any mother. And so from this particular example in history, brothers and sisters, we observe something very important about how our God works. We learn that even in the darkest moments for God's people, even when it seems all hope is lost, even when it seems like God's people are on the losing side, when they're given over as lambs for the slaughter, at that very moment, God may be preparing a great redemption for his people. The Hebrews, the the Israelites, they are brought to the very bottom. They are completely in subservience to Pharaoh. They have no ability to deliver themselves. Their children are being killed. But yet God is preparing a way of redemption. And sometimes this is the way it works in our own lives. Sometimes God sets up scenarios that we would say, Lord, I would not invite the scenario. I do not want you to set up the factors all this way. I don't want it to be this bad before you do great things. Please, Lord, not this arrangement. But this is how God brings glory to himself. This is how God shows us our need for him. Paul writes of a similar kind of scenario in in 2 Corinthians 1. You may recall how he talked about how difficult it was, what they had gone through. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And Paul had learned why God had brought these circumstances about. He knew that it was God's intention to bring Paul and to bring his companions to the very end of themselves so that they would say, I think I'm just going to die. There's nothing left. And then at that point, once it's come to that, God delivers And sometimes that is the way that our God works. He brings about what we might call 11th hour deliverances. You know, right up until the 12th point, the 12th hour point, right at the very end of all things, we think, why do you have to wait that long, Lord? Uh, Ed Welch, he has a a book called Running Scared. It's about fear and worry and anxiety. And he has a a chapter on the God of suspense. (laughs) 
says our God has a sense of suspense in the way that he directs things. And that's how sometimes the Lord sets up these scenarios. Uh, but we don't always want to be in that suspense ourselves. Ed Welch, he says, Such drama is fun to watch in movies and great to hear in other people's stories, but we would prefer not to experience it in our own lives. Like It's, it's great for a film, but not for my life. I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of thing close up. And if we had the ability, we would set up the, our lives in such a way as to avoid... Uh, all trials to avoid any need for deliverances and to keep things as safe and tidy as possible. That's how we would set things up. I imagine if we were just acting out of our self-interest as we perceive it. But the Lord is wiser than we are. He knows that this is good for us. Indeed, it is absolutely essential for us if we will stop trusting in ourselves that we go through a few 11th hour deliverances of our own. Maybe it'll be a ninth or 10th hour. I don't know where God will set it. But he will bring us through that season so that we will learn to stop depending upon ourselves, to cry out to God for deliverance. And surely from the account of Moses' deliverance, we see God's hand at work to answer their prayers, to help them in time of need. But it was a very needy time. Now, brothers and sisters, I ask you, will you trust this God to help you, to deliver you in your time of need? The God who delivered Moses and then delivered God's people through Moses is the same God that we serve today. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Moses and David. And he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The exhortation of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 seems to be a fitting way to close our evening as we think about the fearful circumstances and times that the Lord may bring us through that are similar to Moses's. In Isaiah 35, verse 3, this is the exhortation of the word of God itself to us. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so to those here who have weak hands, if you feel that your, your knees are, are feeble and you feel that your heart is, is fearful, it's quaking, it's concerned, it's anxious, be strong and do not fear, the word of God says. And why is that? Is it because you can handle this thing and figure it out yourself? No, not at all. Far from it. Uh, we find ourselves in circumstances we cannot begin to solve. We are utterly out of our league in trying to solve the cer certain kinds of circumstances our God brings us through. But the answer is not found in ourselves. The answer is found in the God that we cry out to. And as we'll see at the end of Exodus chapter 2, we'll, we'll hear described the prayer of the Israelites. It'll say that they cried out to God for redemption. And it says, the Lord heard. And he answers in the very next chapter by raising up Moses, sending him back to Egypt, and then bringing about a great redemption. So may we anticipate this, the continuance of this story, and may we bring the story to bear in our own lives, because we ourselves are in need of a great Redeemer, and we have one in our great God. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you as our great Redeemer. You have sent forth for us a great redemption in Jesus Christ. You have given us the Holy Spirit of God, which brings new life to us, and we praise you for what you have done. Uh, as we reflect upon your providential wisdom and goodness in the life of Moses, 
I pray that we might bring this story into connection with our own lives, that uh, we would see your hand at work, we would look for your hand at work, and that we would trust you uh, for the daily provision and needs that we have to be redeemed. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.